It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 186 for March 28, 2010, recorded March 27th. This week I have the second part of a three-part series on security. Software publishers regularly release updates that patch security flaws. The problem is knowing when these patches have been released. Microsoft does a good job of patching its own applications via the Windows Update service, and other publishers, such as Adobe, routinely have their applications checked for updates. But what about your other applications? That's where a free application from Secunia can help. Secunia is a Danish company that was founded in 2002. The company offers fee-based security applications for companies, but it also offers a personal software inspector, either as a download that you can install or as an online service. It's free. Unlike Microsoft's baseline security analyzer, Secunia's personal software inspector examines software from all publishers and offers advice on how to secure your computer. I found the Secunia Personal Software Inspector to be easy to use and accurate. As with any such application, it's important to avoid blindly accepting the application's suggestions. But hold that thought for just a moment. After installing the application, I asked it to scan the computer. I started the scan using what they call the simple interface. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see the difference between the simple and advanced interfaces. I eventually switched to the advanced interface, and I'll tell you about that in a little bit. If you feel comfortable with the advanced interface, you'll find that PSI gives you a lot more information that way and a lot more options. The PSI asks you to create a profile. This is optional, but it could be useful if you use the application on more than one computer. The initial scan completed and found just one security problem. It seems that Opera had issued an update, and I hadn't yet noticed it and hadn't downloaded it. Secunia offered a link directly from the scanner to Opera's website so that I could download and install the patch. So it really doesn't get a lot easier than that. It was about this time that I switched from the basic simple interface to the advanced interface. It gave me a lot more information, but that additional information does require a certain amount of analysis. If too much information makes you nervous, you'll want to just stick with the basic interface. But I'll be talking mainly from this point on about the advanced interface. That screen startled me. 18 insecure browsers. Wait a minute. I don't have 18 browsers on my computer. 44 insecure applications, 37 end-of-life applications. I had recently upgraded the computer, installed a new operating system, and reinstalled all the applications. Why were there so many end-of-life applications? The good news came when I started examining the applications that Secunia PSI had called out. Although the scan is surprisingly fast, it's also deep. It had found the Windows.old directory on Drive E, an artifact of last year's upgrade from Windows XP to Windows 7. Nothing in that directory is used. I had kept it in case I needed some of the files, but I haven't needed anything since September 5th, 2009, when the directory was created, so I got rid of it. The 192,003 items, totaling 36 gigabytes, turned out to be too much for the recycle bin, so I just gave Windows permission to remove the files without sending them to the recycle bin. 
because windows.old is an old Windows directory, it contains a lot of system files. These would have been 32-bit system files that will never be needed under the 64-bit system, so it's okay to delete them, and that's what I told Windows to do when it encountered them. As the deletions continued, Secunia PSI reported that it had detected changes. Thinking that I had things under control, I asked PSI for another system scan. This took less than 10 minutes, despite the fact that this computer has 3.5 terabytes of attached storage. Important point here, though, only about one terabyte is actually in use. And yes, only and one terabyte in the same sentence seem not to fit. I still had a lot of reported security problems, though. 24 insecure programs, 33 end-of-life programs. Where are these coming from? So I continued to look at the list. Further investigation revealed that some of the insecure files were on my USB hot backup drive. Well, that makes sense. The drive contains old downloads that have been replaced by updated files. So I can leave those alone. In fact, what I told Sukuni was just simply not to scan that drive anymore. I did that because this is similar to the problem I saw with the Windows.old directory, but I didn't want to delete the files on the hot backup device. But I didn't want bogus errors either. And I have some old applications. Some of these go back to the early days of DOS stored on the computer. Besides the directory holding all of those old files and the hot backup drive, there are a few other locations on the computer that contain files that, although technically flawed, pose no danger to the system because I don't use them. I'm just hanging on to them for historical reasons. So I created additional rules to ignore those. Then I took a break from all those insecure programs and examined the browser's panel. All of my browsers were listed. All of them. And all of them had some security problems. And by all, I mean at least the ones I use most of the time, Internet Explorer, Firefox, and Opera. Some of the security problems have no solution. The VLC video player, for example, used by all browsers, has a security problem with no current solution. So here's a reminder to me, don't play those porn videos that pop up unannounced. This is really good information because it alerts me to a problem that I might not have been aware of otherwise, something I can just be cautious about. But here's a more general rule. When any site offers video, think carefully about whether you trust the source. Eventually, Videoland will resolve the problem, but for now, it's my responsibility to be safe. So then I was down to seven insecure programs and one end-of-life program. Still, that's too many. One of the insecure installations isn't really in use. It's a VMware installation on Drive D created in 2007 under Windows XP. Easy solution. Delete the directory. VMware, by the way, is an application that creates virtual machines so you can run multiple operating systems at the same time. If I need VMware in the future, I can simply install the current version. I found that IrfanView had released a new version that corrected a security problem. I had missed that update. The link took me to the IrfanView website. I downloaded the update and installed it. That problem was solved. Stickier problem. The Microsoft PowerPoint player was reported as a problem, and the link from PSI was to the Windows Update service. But the Windows Update service said nothing needed to be updated. The player was dated 2007, though, and I knew later versions had been released. To correct the failings of the Microsoft Windows Update service, I tried a slightly different approach. I downloaded the PowerPoint player, the older one, from 2007. I installed it. I then ran the Windows Update service, which now freaks out and tells me that very bad things will happen if I don't immediately update the PowerPoint player. I then allowed the Windows Update service to update the PowerPoint player, and I now no longer have a 2007 version of the PowerPoint player. 
A problem with Adobe Illustrator turned out to be a bit of a challenge, too. Secunia PSI led me to a variety of Adobe updates I'd missed, but the AI problem simply wasn't one that could be resolved, at least in the normal way. PSI eventually took me to the Adobe website where the corrective process was detailed. I followed the instructions there. Problem solved. That left one insecure program. The insecure program is an older version of Flash Player installed for Opera. I could delete the Flash Player in the Opera directory. So far I haven't bothered because I don't think I've ever played a Flash presentation in Opera. But let's consider the browsers. On the TechMinder Worldwide website, you'll see a screenshot of what Secunia PSI told me about the browsers. Present on the list, Google Chrome, Microsoft Internet Explorer, Mozilla Firefox, and Opera. All shown as having security problems. But the most serious problems have been resolved by patches. In fact, most of the problems go back to the VLC plugin, which works in all of the applications. Most of the problems. Not all, though. Browsers such as Microsoft Internet Explorer are inherently insecure, and currently, there is no solution. At the end of the day, I came down to having just a single security issue noted. It's one I can understand. It's one I can live with. The bottom line for Secunia PSI tells you where your computer is vulnerable. And for that reason, rates five cats. It's the best application I've found for analyzing security problems before they bite. It's quick, it's easy to use, and for personal use, it is free. You'll find more information and a link to the Secunia website on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Firefox updates are coming fast and furious. Version 3.6 is slightly faster than version 3.5, and 3.5 was considerably faster than 3.0. New features have been added to improve security and to allow users to change Firefox's appearance. If you're already a Firefox user, you're going to want this version. If you're still using some other browser, you really owe it to yourself to take a look at Firefox. If you're a current user during the download process, you may be warned that some of your add-ons will no longer work under version 3.6. This is to be expected. Most add-on developers update their offerings within a few days, or you can simply use the nightly tester tool, another add-on, to force compatibility. Following the installation, you, of course, need to restart Firefox to begin using the new version. As you restart the browser, if you are using Vista or Windows 7, you may see a user access control message. Of course, just okay that. And there you go. Your new browser is running. So what's new? Well, let me start with one of the features that a lot of people will simply consider silly. Personas. You can choose one of more than 30,000 appearances for the browser. Why would you want to do this? Because you can. Well, also because you spend a lot of time sitting in front of your computer, or at least I do, and I spend a lot of that time in front of the computer looking at a browser. I might as well have the thing look the way I'd like it. The Personas screen told me I could hover my mouse cursor over one of the Personas and see what it would look like, kind of a preview on my browser. It didn't work. I found out later it works only after you've installed at least one Persona. But that's easy. Installation is as simple as clicking a button called Wear It, and your browser has a new look. At that point, you can visit the Personas page, look through the 30,000 Personas, hover your mouse cursor over any of them, and see what your browser would look like if you'd installed it. And with more than 30,000 to choose from, you're bound to find some that just don't work. 
you'll see one of those on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And if you can read it, your eyes are better than mine. Now, here's an important improvement. Plugins that aren't current can present a security problem, and not all plugins warn when they're out of date. Old versions of plugins can cause crashes and other stability problems, too, so Firefox monitors plugins and warns when they're out of date. Mozilla even provides a site where you can obtain additional information. Unfortunately, it's not always accurate. I use LogMeIn, and the detector couldn't even find it. That's really not a problem because LogMeIn checks each time it's launched and makes sure that the plugin is current. If not, you're encouraged to download it. This failing makes me wonder, though, what other plugins Firefox doesn't detect properly. I'm sure that will be improved over the next few versions. Some other features in the latest version, video can now be displayed full screen and supports poster frames. JavaScript performance has been significantly improved in terms of speed. New cascading style sheet attributes such as gradients, background sizing, and pointer events are now supported. And several functions of the new HTML5 document object model are supported. Some of these functions are being put in place for the future. Until a lot of people have browsers that support them, few designers will use them. Browser developers have been wrestling with typefaces for the better part of a decade. The previous version of Firefox supported embedding TrueType and OpenType fonts. Version 3.6 includes support for the Web Open Font Format, or WOF, W-O-F-F. And this is the technology that may eventually allow designers to use more than a handful of typefaces that are reasonably safe across all browsers on all platforms. WAF faces are compressed, so they download faster than TrueType or OpenType faces. They also contain metadata about the source of the original type outlines, which makes it easier for designers to track down the source of a typeface they like. This is the first step in what will probably be a long process to make embedded typefaces a reality across many browsers on various operating systems, but at least it's a start. The bottom line for Firefox 3.6 is four cats. The best browser continues to improve, still not perfect. I can't give Firefox 3.6 a five-cat rating because of the incomplete plug-in detector. This will continue to be upgraded through the current development cycle. No other browser even comes close to offering the flexibility that Firefox does. And that's why it's the one I use most of the time. If you want more information, the Mozilla website is where you want to go, and you'll find a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. A couple of weeks ago, the very first dot-com turned 25 years old. These days, something like 100,000 domains are registered every day. Back then, 25 years ago, it was nine days until the second and third domains were registered, it was just a few days shy of a year before domain number 10 was registered. Do you remember who was there first? Was it Microsoft? Was it IBM? No. <laughs> Some of the original registrants are no longer in business, and the domain name redirects elsewhere. So I thought I'd take a look this week at the first 10 domains that were registered. Symbolics.com was registered on March 15, 1985. There was a computer manufacturer known as Symbolics. When that company went out of business, another company purchased the assets except for the domain name and continued selling hardware. The domain name is now owned by XF.com. This is as of 2009, and there's really not much to see there. 
Dot-com number two was BBN, registered on the 24th of April, 1985. Raymond Tomlinson, a programmer who implemented an email system in 1971 and used the at sign to separate the user from the machine. In 1967, he joined the technology company Bolt, Baranek and Newman, which became BBN Technologies, and now appears to be owned by Raytheon. Also on the 24th of May, 1985, Think.com was registered. Now it is ThinkQuest Projects. It's a project environment where teachers and students engage in collaborative learning. No new domains were registered until July. MCC.com registered then. Microelectronics and Computer Technology Corporation was at one time the largest computer industry research and development consortium. It was located in Austin, Texas. The organization, funded primarily by mainframe computer manufacturers, was disbanded in 2000, and the website no longer exists. Deck.com, number five, registered at the end of September 1985. Digital Equipment Corporation was one of the larger manufacturers of mini computers, devices that were smaller and much less expensive than mainframes, but larger and more powerful than desktop systems. A failing deck allowed itself to be acquired by Compaq, which was then acquired by HP. And if you type in deck.com, that's why you'll see hp.com these days. Northrop.com was registered as domain number six in November of 1985. Prior to 1994, Northrop Corporation was an aircraft manufacturer. The company was founded in 1939. It merged with the Grumman Corporation in 1994 to form Northrop Grumman, and that's the site you see now. Number seven is still around, Xerox. Xerox Xerox.com was registered in January of 1986. The company's Palo Alto Research Center was instrumental in developing desktop computers, notebook computers, the laser printer, which was later licensed to HP, and a lot of the technology that runs the Internet. Also in January of 1986, domain number 8. Originally, the Stanford Research Institute, SRI.com, for SRI International, is a large contract research institute established by the Stanford University trustees in 1946. It was later spun off from the university, continues to operate as an independent, non-profit organization in Menlo Park, California. HP.com was registered in March of 1986. William Hewlett, David Packard, started a little electronics company in a Palo Alto garage not long after graduating with degrees in electrical engineering from Stanford University. That was back in 1939. HP built its reputation and its customer base by placing extreme emphasis on quality. And rounding out the top ten, or at least the first ten, Belcor.com registered in March of 1986. When the telephone company was the telephone company, Bell Communications Research, also known as Belcor, was the research and development division. Now it's called Telcordia Technologies, and the company works mainly in network communications and telecommunications. So maybe you're wondering where Microsoft fits in the first 100 domains. It doesn't. Microsoft thought that the Internet was nothing more than a passing fad. It wasn't until more than two and a half years after Symbolics registered its domain name near the end of November 1987 that the 100.com domain had been established and Microsoft was not in there. Keep in mind that this was still several years before Tim Berners-Lee invented the technology that would power the web. That happened in 1990. In those days, the Internet consisted of email, gopher, newsgroups, and telnet. Microsoft may have missed the first 100, but IBM was in there at number 11. 
Its registration was followed a few days later by Sun, then Intel, Texas Instruments, and AT&T, all on the same day of March 1986. Sometimes weeks passed between any new registrations back in those days. And now, daily, a hundred thousand. In short circuits, it only seems like forever. In November of 1980, Micro-Soft agreed to license a personal computer operating system that it hadn't written and didn't yet own to IBM. IBM hadn't yet announced its personal computer yet. That would come a year later in 1981. And before then, Microsoft had to come up with the operating system that it had sold. Bill Gates and company worked with a small software company in Seattle, offering them what seemed like a large cash price for a rewrite of an operating system that was patterned after Digital Research's CPM operating system. What Microsoft neglected to mention to Seattle Computer was that it intended to license the software to IBM. That's the operating system that became MS-DOS when Microsoft sold it and PC-DOS when IBM sold it. In 1985, Microsoft and IBM started work on what they called OS2, an advanced operating system, but Microsoft was already working on Windows and later dumped OS2. Along the way, the company changed its name to Microsoft with a capital S in the middle and then to Microsoft with just the capital M. Bill Gates became for a while the richest person in the world. The company spawned a lot of millionaires. And in 1987, Microsoft purchased Forethought, a company that had developed Presenter for the Mac. Presenter became PowerPoint, one of the most important and most misused components of the Microsoft Office suite. What's all this about? Happy 35th birthday to Microsoft. In another 35 years, the year will be 2045. My younger daughter will have paid off her house mortgage by then. And Microsoft will be 70. Or will it? Given the challenges Microsoft faces... I wonder if it'll be around 35 years from now. Some anti-spam organizations say that 97% of Internet email is spam. Really? Well, the answer is both yes and no. Certainly there is a lot of spam, but even if you're one of the people who receive a lot of spam, spam is probably not 97% of what you receive. So this is a lie? Well, not exactly. A lot of spam is never delivered. Spammers send messages to addresses that no longer exist and to addresses that have never existed. I have one address that has never received even a single spam so far. I use it only for banking communications, so only banks and financial institutions have it, and they're pretty good about keeping email addresses private. It's also an address that's not something anyone would guess. For one thing, the address is about 30 characters long, and the characters, upper and lower case, numbers, and symbols, were chosen at random. So, clearly, that's a special address for a special purpose. For most of my day-to-day -day communications, I use an address that is easy to guess, and it does receive a lot of spam, but still not 97%. It's all those messages to undeliverable addresses that push the overall percentages up, those addresses never receive any legitimate messages, only spam, so that's where the huge number comes from. But spam still costs a lot. It must be transported and stored. And this, by the way, is six years after Bill Gates famously pronounced the end of spam by the year 2006. It could have happened. Maybe someday everyone who needs to cooperate to kill spam will cooperate. But I'm not going to hold my breath. In the meantime, the creeps have been developing a new technique called Scareware. You receive a message that says your computer is infected, and you must download something 
or you must visit a website immediately to fix the problem. If you follow the instructions far from fixing the problem, you will be rewarded by having an application installed that you don't want. The application may be spyware that steals your information, or it might cause programs to stop running and hold your computer hostage until you pay a ransom. No matter how legitimate a message appears to be, it's important to check it out before you do anything suggested. That brings me to another dream. If everyone simply ignored spam, the spammers wouldn't make any money from it, and the flood would stop. But I'm not holding my breath there, either. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.